Matara e kawi mai te ngoi iara iara. Mate marama e whakaora ia koe i waianga po. Mate ua e horoi o maharahara. Mate hau e pupuhi te pā kahukahu ki roto i to tinana. I roto i au hi koetanga i te ao. Kia whakaora koe ki te humarie a te āhua hoki i au rā. Mō ake tono atu. Āmine. May the sun bring you energy by day. May the moon softly restore you by night. May the rain wash away your worries. May the wind blow new strength into your being. May you walk on this earth in peace all the days of your life and know its beauty forever and ever. Amen. Tēnā koto, tēnā koto, tēnā tata koto. Tēnā koto a te whānau o Auckland Unitarians. Tēnā koto e ngā manuhiri. No mai haere mai ki tēnei whareikarekia. So welcome, welcome, welcome to us all. Welcome Auckland Unitarians. Welcome to any guests, whether you're joining us today or by playing this recording on future days. We welcome you into this online space made sacred by the attention and focus of the community of Auckland Unitarians. I'm Alex Geard, originally from Tamaki Makoto, now living in Te Whanganui Atara. Today, we're gathering online while the church organ is installed back in the church, but me after a major renovation. Kia ora. June is Pride Month and the start of our meteorological winter. The European Union recently held a conference titled Beyond Growth, which I've loosely taken as my theme today. In this past week, we've seen the first maps showing proposed areas for retreat after the destructive floods earlier this year. The war in Ukraine grinds on. My grown-up godson brought a puppy home. For all these reasons, here's Mary Oliver's poem, Don't Hesitate. If you suddenly and unexpectedly feel joy, don't hesitate. Give into it. There are plenty of lives and whole towns destroyed or about to be. We are not wise, and not very often kind, and much can never be redeemed. Still, life has some possibility left. Perhaps this is its way of fighting back, that sometimes something happens better than all the riches or power in the world. It could be anything, but very likely you notice it in the instant when love begins. Anyway, that's often the case. Anyway, whatever it is, don't be afraid of its plenty. Joy is not made to be a crumb. Now, excuse me while I play with matches. Um, the words for our chalice lighting today are by Leslie Takahashi. So let me see if I can get this to work first. I realize that there are people out there who uh, say that one of the marks of being a UU is having a lighter always to add. I am not, sadly, one of the people who is thus prepared. All that we have ever loved and all that we have ever been stands with us on the brink of all that we aspire to create, a deeper peace, a larger love, a more embracing hope, a deeper joy in this life we share. I wanted to share something with you about what the future might look like, especially something new about what's been going on in space around climate change and degrowth. I've been finding that quite depressing though, so I admit that I even asked ChatGPT for some examples of what I might say. The homilies it came up with were familiar, reassuring, anodyne, and almost completely pointless. They did sound good, though. So instead, I want to throw some ideas at you 
about what people are like and how we work together. The ideas are all a bit flawed, they're working notes and patterns to look for, but I found them useful. We will live through the changes that are coming as people. Can we harness any of the things that are baked into that to get us through? The first draft of the moral mind. I'm going to start with individuals, although in the chicken and egg development of humans, with our obstetrically challenging pregnancies and long dependent infancies, our pattern is to survive as groups or not at all. The nature versus nurture debate has been expressed over the past century as whether babies are blank slates at birth or whether they already have some human and personality traits baked in. My understanding of current thinking is that some things are made easy for us by our physical and psychological hardware. We're not blank slates at birth, but nor are we fully formed. A default build is programmed to recognize and respond to faces. Skin contact generally feels good and causes physical changes which incline us to bond. One exploration and development of this, this idea is moral foundations theory, which proposes that people are born with an inclination towards certain values. Those things seem to include care, also called protection from harm. It's important to protect the vulnerable from harm and fairness or proportionality. They also include some shared values that different people and groups prioritize differently, although we share them, leading to cultural and political differences. Interesting to see if anyone bristles at some of these. Uh, loyalty, especially recognizing and supporting your group. I know we've just had a soccer reference. Respect for authority. I think this is a way of addressing the harm that violence otherwise causes. If you make the authority struggles relatively rare and recognize the decisions of the leaders between times, you don't actually need to fight or separate over every decision. But hey, purity. This is cleanliness, food preparation and waste management, but it's also abstracted to include cultural ideas of appropriate sexual behavior and what you allow into your body, whether that's organically grown food, GMOs, or increasingly vaccines. It's also who you allow into your social groups or country, which is probably why debates about immigration can run so deep. I'm also seeing equality discussed as a separate value from fairness, and sometimes in conflict with respect for authority. We, as people, bring some programming with us. It's mostly helped us get by as small groups. Sometimes it can be expanded to make bigger groups hold together, as when in-group loyalty becomes patriotism. Each value can express in different ways. Some of those are clearly good and pro-social. Some of those seem to underpin deep differences, which can affect our ability to work together with people who aren't part of our own in-groups. My next concept is about yeast. Yeast is a fungus. In the right conditions, it will consume sugars and turn them into alcohols and carbon dioxide. Bakers, and especially brewers, make use of this to physically and chemically change their products. But yeast has no group coordination. It will consume sugars as long as there are sugars to consume, and it will create waste products around itself until they're concentrated enough to kill the yeast. I've seen it used as the classic example of happy, 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 oops. On a bad day, it seems that our species has no more collective sense than yeast. We'll keep doing things that make sense in the short term without realizing that the sugars in our environment are running out and the alcohol level is about to kill us. That's not fully fair. Humans have banded together to address, at least for a time, issues such as ozone depletion and nuclear proliferation. And alcohol doesn't actually kill all the yeast. When it runs out of food, the yeast will flocculate, which seems to be a fancy way of saying it sticks to other yeasts which go dormant together. 
you can harvest and carefully store this yeast. And if you feed it again in a suitable environment, it'll come back and consume all the sugars around it all over again. As a side note, risen yeasted bread dough is alcoholic. I had not known this. I had, makes sense. Much of the alcohol is cooked off in baking or evaporates off afterward, but fresh bread can contain maybe 2% alcohol. Next is Dunbar's number. Groups are hard. Primates are not yeast, although I may sometimes um, throw up my hands about us and mutter about behaviours we have in common. We live in groups. Uh, an idea that comes from the study of primate groups is that there's an upper limit to the number of meaningful relationships that a person can sustain through a lot of approximations and extrapolations about things like brain size. Anthropologist Robin Dunbar proposed that the limit was around 150 social connections, but that maintaining that many connections would require spending very roughly 42% of a person's time in social grooming behaviors to keep all those relationships growing. This is often extended to suggest that the maximum natural size of human primate groups is around 150 people. It's clearly more complicated than that. Humans have found all manner of ways to stretch the limits and allow us to work together without needing those direct, personal, socially meaningful relationships with each other. It's not necessarily the case that every employee of a large company or country has a meaningful social relation with every other employee or citizen. It is usually the case that there will be silos, restricted spans of control and cultural practices, both written down and enacted in the way a larger group works. I note that locally, the group unit that sits roughly around Dunbar's number is the hapu. There's some speculation that as hapu got much bigger than this, they tended to split. The takeaway is that big groups are hard. We're not innately wired for them and we have to use learnt culture to make them work. Some of that culture involves finding ways to politely ignore each other. Our ability to walk down the street in a city and apparently ignore most of the people there is one of the ways we cope. Next, looking to the herd for alarm calls. I started calling this the bystander effect, but it's actually a little bit different. What are other people doing? We tend to look around to see how others are responding to something to help us decide how we'll respond. This goes for a lot of human interactions whether we cue, masking in public, who it's okay to bully, but it's particularly for danger situations. Is this one of the situations where it would be okay to do something that would otherwise be socially awkward? I live in one of the shaky bits of the country. There's a ritual that happens whenever the earth seems to wobble just a bit, where people look at each other and say, is that an earthquake? That moment of looking around for confirmation is also when we assess which set of rules are in play. If it's a truck going by, going by, or a strong gust of wind on a tower block that sways, it'd seem a bit foolish to drop cover and hold. The rules change if it's a proper earthquake. But actually, they're also different if there's no one around to check in with. One of the section introductions that Greta Thunberg wrote in the climate book has this to say. Throughout history, there have been many major societal changes. Some of them have been quite dramatic for good or for bad. So when we call for unprecedented changes in all aspects of our societies, we do not mean that we should just become vegetarian for one day a week, offset your holiday trips to Thailand, or switch your diesel SUV for an electric car. And yet that is what most people in large parts of the world seem to think. We humans are social animals, herd animals if you like. As Stuart Capstick and Lorraine Whitmarsh show in the following chapter, we copy the behavior of others and we follow our leaders. 
if we do not see anyone else behaving as if we are in a crisis, then very few will understand that we actually are in a crisis. In other words, it hardly matters if you say that we are facing an emergency, if no one is acting as if we are in an emergency. Finishing that quote, um, and onto my own words, we can make huge social changes quickly. We saw that in our lockdowns, but we're also wired to question false alarms. Someone who's accused of crying wolf when it's not warranted will lose credibility and social currency and may elicit anger from those who feel they did something foolish when the alarm was called. And finally, I come to colonialism, extraction and capitalism, just a little light thing for your Sunday morning. For much of the time that we've been people, we've got by with what we in our groups or tribes could gather and produce with our own knowledge and muscle power. There have long been ways to supplement that though. And in recorded history, we've got quite effective at using those. Some of those are physical technologies, levers, wheels, roads, granaries and systems, horse colors, writing. Some of those are more clearly cultural technologies, cities, taxes, communal worship, stories. Often the types of technologies go together. Cities support and require the central collection and distribution of water and grain, which itself depends on having some way to gather labor or goods. This is both effective and has a troubling side. Put simply, if I take your stuff, I have more stuff. If I use your labor in ways that mean I get more from it than it costs me, I also have more stuff. What do I do with that extra stuff? What are the social and other costs of accumulating it? What does it mean that this is usually a reward for the use of force, the violence of conquest and slavery? What does it mean that those who wield that force can take goods and people from other places? What does it mean that we can keep our own places clean by disposing of the rubbish over there? There's a whole series of talks to have about how the way we live has come about because of the unfair use of resources and labor that were not ours and were not freely given or traded. It's important to how we might address our future, more important than we might at first think. As we move into the future, whether your concept of time sees that as backwards or forwards, we're still the animals that grazed and scavenged, gardened and hunted, built walled cities and assailed them. We carry programming at deep levels that worked well enough for us in our earlier small groups, but are sometimes painfully stretched in our current world-spanning communities and supply chains. But those are the kinds of animals we are. Are there ways we can use that programming to look ahead, to call the alarm, to make big changes quickly? Can we use our big brains and our social bonding to make futures for ourselves and our species? Do we have more forethought than yeast? It's now time for notices. We'll use the same system we used. Oh, hang on. <gasps> Important things, extinguishing the chalice. Yay. Right. I invite you to join me in sharing the words for extinguishing the chalice. I'll get this eventually. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we carry in our hearts until we are together again. Our closing words are by Eric Williams. The world is too beautiful to be praised by only one voice. May you have the courage to sing your part. The world is too broken to be healed by only one set of hands. May you have the courage to use your gifts. May you go in peace. Now, the question I've set for discussion is, knowing all this, being the kind of things about 
people and groups that I've, I've mentioned. What are some rational things to do as we move into the future as individuals and as societies? And then what are some caring things to do? <laughs>